You're listening to the Bethel Community Church Podcast. Our podcast normally showcases our weekly sermons here in Chicago at 7601 West Foster. Now, podcasts are great, but they do not replace the care and community you receive from the local church or from your local pastor. So we encourage you to come join our community or contact us to help you find a community in your area. We pray the Lord speaks to you as you listen. Enjoy. For his uh, constant work in our lives. We are going to be taking up the offering now, so if we can ask the ushers to come forward. And again, it's part of our worship as we give to, uh, as we give to the Lord. Let's pray for the offering. Father, we do thank you and praise you that you are a gracious God who provides abundantly for us. Father, I pray that you would be with us um, as individuals, as couples, as a church, Uh, Father, that we would focus on your goodness to us. Father, now we give to you out of thankful hearts for your many blessings that you give us, uh, physically, um, health-wise, financially, and spiritually, Father, that we can meet together to worship and to exalt you this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, have you ever felt that others were more interested in what you could do for them than they were interested in you as a person? Now, a number of years ago, when we were living in Arizona, I received a phone call um, uh, from one of uh, from our oldest daughter, Lisa, uh, who was living at the time down in Phoenix. Now, I always enjoy hearing her cheerful voice, and it usually ends up usually costing me money. Now, some of you know what that's like as parents. You know that you're talking with your, uh, especially college-age students, and you just know it's going to cost you eventually. So that's going through my mind. Now, as we began chatting away, I was asking how school was going and also how, um, how her job was going. Um, I could all of a sudden sense that she w- there was a sense of urgency, that she had an agenda. Uh, and so uh, what she, I was wondering is, what does she want from me now? How much is it going to cost me this time. So he interrupted me mid-sentence and said, Dad, I have a car full of people here. We are on our way to Cottonwood, and we've just had a blown out uh, a flat tire. Pieces of the car have, have been torn off, uh, and to say the least, she was not interested in how I was doing. She didn't ask, Dad, how are you feeling today? It's Saturday. Are you, you, know, are you working on your sermon for tomorrow? Um, and she didn't have any concern about that. Um, but she, rather, her, her concern was, how could I help her? Uh, what should she do? Uh, AAA wouldn't uh, go out and uh, tow her because she, her name wasn't on the card. Uh, she wondered whether she should buy a new tire. Uh, would I pay for it, which is really what she wanted. Uh, I'd bailed her out on other occasions, so uh, why wouldn't I help her on this occasion as well? Well, I encouraged her to buy two tires. I said, you need to balance the two, put them on your front tires, your front-wheel uh, drive car. And then I said, yes, I'll pay for it and send me the bill. And that's really what she wanted to hear. She just wanted to, waited through everything else just to get to that answer. Well, she sought to find me, uh, not so much just to talk with me, but the focus was more on what will you do for me? Uh, You know, would I help her out uh, as I had in the past? Um, she hoped that I would again help her uh, as a, in the present just like I had in the past. Now, that's all to say that people often seek us out not for what, uh, for what we can do for them rather than for who we are. 
Now, I'm tying this into spiritually because we do the same thing with God. Just think about it. What we do is many people approach Jesus for what he can do for them rather than for who he is. Uh, that was true back in the first century when Jesus uh, lived and ministered here on earth. Uh, this is illustrated in John chapter 6, which we're going to be looking at this morning. It bears this out. Now, all of a sudden, one day, a fleet of boats uh, set sail across the Sea of Galilee. Uh, the boats were approximately 25 feet long. Uh, they were primarily used for fishing, but on this day, they were filled with people. They were filled with men and women, with boys and girls of all ages. They were heading to the northern end of the lake of this sprawling town of Capernaum. There were dozens and dozens of boats Boats that, were fill, that filled the horizon. Now, if you were a citizen of Capernaum, uh, you would have been wondering why. Why so many boats approaching? Why so many people coming to your town? Capernaum was an important town, um, but it, and it was located in the hillside of the, uh, of the sea coast. It was one of the larger towns in those days. But why the sudden influx of people? Why this invasion all at once? As the boats reached the shores, the boats were pulled up onto the rocky shores, uh, the sails were lowered, and the people just scrambled over the rocks onto the shore. Uh, those who had come had a specific purpose. They wanted to find Jesus. They were on a quest to find him. The Apostle John records this incident and also includes his interpretation of the communion table. Last week, we began a series uh, entitled, Unprecedented, I Am. Uh, we are utilizing the book of John to focus on the person and the work of, G of the Lord Jesus Christ. Last week, Walt Cherkowski opened our series by discussing the prologue, the introduction to John's gospel account of the life and ministry of Jesus. In the first 18 verses of chapter 1, many of the major themes of the gospel are introduced and then developed more fully through the, uh, through the gospel. Their key terms include life and light and darkness and witness and world and glory and grace. But the major theological term is the word. Remember verse 1, in the, uh, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. See, what is important is that Jesus is referred to as the Word. The Apostle John is the author of the book and that bears his name. He states that the Word is eternal. The Word is in relationship to God, the Father, and also the Word, of, the word is God. Jesus is all of these. Uh, he's eternal, he has a relationship with the Father, and he is God himself. Jesus is part of the Trinity. We worship one God who reveals himself in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Jesus is God the Son. Uh, as, the word, uh, as, as the Word says in uh, chapter 1, verse 14, he became flesh and dwelt among us here on earth. That's why we know it's Jesus, is the Word. But John in his gospel account also emphasizes other aspects of Jesus' uh, person. The claims of Jesus. He makes seven I Am statements in the Gospel of John. He says that he is a source of everything that we could possibly need. He truly is our sustenance. Well, first of all, he says, I am the bread of life. And he says, I am the light of the world. I am the gate of the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the vine. Now, over the next seven weeks, we'll be looking at each one of these seven descriptions of Jesus. This morning, we're going to be uh, starting with the first I am. And that's where Jesus boldly proclaims in John 6.25, he says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. 
Well, the question that rises is, what is the significance of Jesus saying, I am the bread of life? We will discover that Jesus satisfies the deepest longings of our souls. That's why he is our sustenance. He's what we need in order to survive. Now turn in your Bibles to John chapter 6. And at this point we see is that there's a fleet of boats that are uh, leaving Bethsaida. Uh, we see that in verses 22 to 24. And I think you can see, uh, uh, we should have a map here where you see at the top, um, and, uh, uh, Bethsaida is off to the, uh, to the uh, actually to the east, and the boats are going to travel west just about four miles. Uh, they're going to travel four miles uh, to go to Capernaum. Uh, and again, this is up in the northern part of the Sea of Galilee, obviously in the uh, area of Galilee. At first glance, it seems good. People are searching for Jesus. Uh, there was confusion, though, where he was. The previous day, Jesus was in Bethsaida, uh, where he had miraculously fed 5,000 people with just five loaves and two fishes. Incredible. That evening, the people observed that Jesus had sent his 12 disciples out in the boat uh, that was in the harbor of Bethsaida across the sea and head west, uh, presumably, to Capernaum. Again, four miles away. However, Jesus did not get into the boat with them. He had remained behind. He went up into the mountains and, and he was praying. Now, the next morning, the people woke up early to find that Jesus wasn't there. He was nowhere to be found. The one that they wanted was gone. Where had he gone? During the night, he had walked out on the water to the boat. This is found in verses 16 to 21. Uh, and he joined his disciples. They saw him. They were afraid. Uh, he said, you know, you don't need to be afraid. It's me. And he got in the boat and then traveled the rest of the way to Capernaum with them uh, to the shore. The people were aware uh, that Capernaum was Jesus' headquarters. But the question is, all those people that were in Bethsaida got into their boats and they traveled the next morning to find Jesus. They knew that Capernaum was Jesus' headquarters. And so that's why they went over there to find him. They found him in the, uh, in the synagogue, which is where the rabbi would teach every Tuesday and Thursday. So they found him located there. Well, the first thing that we're going to see in this text is that people frequently come to Jesus to meet daily needs. See, according to verse 25, it says, When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? When did you arrive? Really what they meant was, how did you get here? Because they were wondering, how did he, how did he travel there? He couldn't have gone by sea or someone would have seen him, and it was too far for him to walk around the shore. So they're wondering, how did you get here? Um, interestingly, uh, Jesus doesn't answer their question. He, didn't, he wasn't so concerned about whether they knew how he had gotten there. Rather, his concern, and listen carefully to this, is that they understood why had they come to him that day. Let's read John 6, verses 26 to 40 uh, to really find the answer to that question. Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate and your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him, the God the Father, has set his seal. Then they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? And Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to him, Then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? 
Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, as it is written, He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it is not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is, is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Then Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said, I, but I said to you that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will not cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life, and I will raise Him up on the last day. See, the first question we have to answer is really, what is our motive? Why are we here? It's a crucial for us to understand that. Why did we come here to church this morning? Why are you coming to the Lord's table uh, this morning? Uh, we are just like those who scrambled out of their boats on the rocky shores as they arrived in Capernaum that morning. For many of us, it hasn't been easy to get here. Um, you have had to wake up early, you got dressed, you put your makeup on, you had to get the kids up, you had to feed them and dress them uh, in some shape or form, and then you piled into your car amidst all the threats and the screams. The car ride here was far from peace and serenity. You didn't sing praise songs or quote Bible verses to each other. Uh, perhaps there were some harsh and cross words exchanged. The time conscious ones were ticked because you were late, and some perhaps felt that uh, they hadn't finished their breakfast. Others hadn't finished putting their face all the way on, and their hair isn't the way you like it. You parked your car, and as you opened the doors, steam sort of was released out into, the, uh, out into the air. People came and met you in the parking lot warmly. They greeted you saying, how are you doing? And you know what you did? You sinned. You lied. You said, all is fine. There's nothing wrong. I know what this is like. I raised three kids. I grew up in a family of, of nine kids. So I know what the Sunday mornings are like. It's not easy to get here. You went through a whole lot, just like those people in, uh, in Bethsaida did to get to Capernaum. It's not easy at all. And I didn't talk to any of your wives. I didn't talk to any of your husbands. I didn't talk to any of your kids. That's just the way it is. Getting here can be a challenge. But the question is, why are you here? More importantly, importantly is um, really what are we seeking to do and we see that the people came to Jesus not with the best of motives they didn't come to be with Jesus it was what Jesus could do for them see they knew that the day before uh, he had actually fed them 5,000 people with just five fish and uh, five loaves and two fish incredible they wanted more from him hey what are you going to give us today that's what there's a motive. What can we get from you, God? They didn't recognize the purpose of those miracles was to point them to the fact that the Messiah had come and that he was giving bread from heaven to them. They didn't realize that he was the Messiah. That, and, and so they missed out. And sometimes we can come here with the wrong motives. We approach God. God, what are you going to do for me today? Rather than whose presence we are in. That's so important for us to grasp that. 
See, the next issue from our motives is what are our needs? See, what needs do we have? This brought out in verses 26 and 27. See, they had come not to be taught God's word, not to have their spiritual needs met, but rather to have their physical needs met. The miraculous feeding of the 5,000 plus, uh, plus people uh, was not so much ab- about Jesus being God, but it was rather him possessing power to provide food for the people. He could supply their physical needs. Again, just with five loaves and two fish. And he multiplied it to feed all those people. They were looking for him. uh, They were looking for him, he pointed out, not because they had seen a miracle and a sign by which they could discover who he really was as the Son of God and also the nature of his work that he had come on earth to perform, but merely because they were hungry and they just wanted more food. There was no awareness of their spiritual condition and their spiritual poverty. I like what commentator Merrill Tenney wrote an excellent commentary, actually back in the 60s or the 70s, and this is what he writes. He says, The motive of the multitude in seeking Jesus was wrong because it was a desire for more bread and fish rather than for what the bread and the fish symbolized. They failed to see that the ultimate end of life must be spiritual not material possessions. They did not discern that the seal of God's approval was upon Jesus and that they could trust him as the nourishment of their souls. In other words, he is the sustenance of life. That's what uh, is being emphasized here. See, Jesus had hosted a tremendous picnic a few days earlier, so now they gathered around for a sequel. Uh, They wanted to make him king, but somehow he had slipped away from their grasp, so now they're approaching Jesus for what he could now offer them that day. They did not come to him because of who he was, the Messiah, or to give themselves to worshiping him and to serving him. That's why we are to gather. They were not interested in who Jesus was. It was more what they could get from him. And that's a dangerous attitude, isn't it? It was as dangerous in Jesus' day as it is now in our day. In our materialistic, self-oriented world, many people come to Christ not because of who he is, but in light of what he might give them. People hope uh, to Christ uh, that he'll solve their problems, which which he can do. There's no denial. He he wants to do that, and he loves and he cares for us. They turn to Christ seeking help with physical, uh, physical health issues, and he cares about that or business problems, or marital conflict, or relational strain, or financial debt, or depression. Or maybe they just, they want a spouse, they want a child, they want a new job. Certainly he can do all of these things, and he may do that. However, that's the wrong reason in coming to meet with him. Jesus clearly states that it's wrong to be all consumed for that which perishes and that which spoils. He rebuked those who sought him for materialistic motivation and for their lack of spiritual perception. That's why he stated in verse 27, do not work for that which spoils. He was saying that people um, should not just extend their efforts for material things, uh, that which will not last forever. And that's physical food. It's short-lived. But spiritual food is what leads to eternal life. Not uh, many think that the essence of life is bread or, or we would say food. It does satisfy our present physical needs, but it isn't what ultimately satisfies us. Notice that when Satan uh, uh, tempted Jesus to turn stones into the loaves of bread, Jesus responded, man cannot live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. See, the question is, what are we investing our lives in? Reminds me of someone that many of us who have been here at Bethel for a long time knows, Ann Altergott. 
And Alter God uh, was here for a number of years when I first came here as pastor, and I remember talking with her, and I remember uh, as her life was coming to an end, spending some time with her, and Anne had a life that she just loved to share Jesus with everybody. She understood that the spiritual really matters, and that the um, sustenance of life is Jesus. He is the bread of life. She understood that. So everywhere she went, she shared Jesus with family and friends, uh, with neighbors, uh, and just anywhere she went. Now, the interesting thing was that she, her biggest ministry was I think for over four decades, in, the, in a very dark place uh, in the Cook County uh, jail system. She went down there to see some of the most hardened criminals, and she led some of them to Christ. She definitely shared Christ with them. She was a little woman, but man, was she powerful because she knew who was with her, and she went and shared Christ there. Interestingly, at the end of her life, uh, just a few days before she passed away, uh, someone who lived across the hall from her, she was at a senior center, and said, hey, could you, leave, could you share Christ with my son? And literally, I think it was just the day before she passed, she asked, he accepted Christ with her. Just shared Jesus. You know, that, that's, that was, that's spiritual. That, that, that's, the, that's where we're, we're to invest our lives are in, in that way. But see, how are you working? For the material or for the eternal? <clears throat> Jesus says, when you come to me, don't come for that which uh, takes care of the here and the now. Come for that which, uh, that which will last forever. This food is eternal. It feeds the deepest center of human existence, the spiritual self, and continues to satisfy. This food is not a reward that can be earned. It's merely given by the Son of God, who has always existed but identified with all humanity when he came here to earth. See, he is the source of eternal, everlasting, eternal bread because the Father approves what he does. He bears the seal of the Father's ownership. And that's what's so significant. So it's coming to Jesus. The question is, what is our motive in approaching him? What are our needs? But then also, what is our hope? See, are we living for the temporal or are we living for the eternal? Those who came to Jesus still do not understand who it is that fed them. They don't understand the meaning of the gift. They seem to only hear the phrase, work for the food. And they assume that which is work uh, they need to do in order to please God. There is nothing that we can do to earn what God gives us freely. In verse 28, the people inquired, what must we do to be doing the works of, of God? Jesus' answer is very concise. He says, believe in him. Uh, that's Jesus, whom he, the Father, has sent. His listeners were not convinced. They wanted further proof before they would believe in Jesus. They demanded a sign from him to prove that he was from heaven. They anticipated a secular Messiah, an earthly ruler, who would then meet all their earthly needs. The rabbis would uh, taught that the Messiah would, uh, would be able to provide even more incredibly than Moses did uh, when he gave their ancestors manna while they were in the desert. And Jesus could certainly outdo him. And so they just said, what will you do for us, Jesus? Let's see your magic. Go ahead and do something. At this point, Jesus looked at them just as he often looks at us. He says, your fathers missed the significance of the miracle in the desert. They're mistaken. The manna didn't come from Moses. It came from God in heaven. He's the source. And they focused on the gift rather than the giver. 
And he's saying, you're just like your ancestors. As they wandered in the desert, they focused on the gift, not on the giver. You're doing the same thing. You are missing uh, it far worse because the true bread is right now in your, right in front of you. It's in your midst. The bread that God gave through Moses symbolized the true bread of God that would be coming down from heaven, and that's what gives us life, eternal life. And that's Jesus himself. See, rather than focusing on the signs and the wonders, the gifts, we are to focus on Jesus, the giver of those gifts. When we approach the Lord, we do so because of who he is. He is God and not because of what we want from him. We are to believe in Jesus whom the Father has sent. He is the true bread of God from heaven who gives life to the world. Well, now we, as we continue on here, we see that, that uh, people turn to Jesus in one of two ways. It's, one, it's either or. It's not, there's no other multiple choice. Uh, see, what Jesus does is in chapter 6, there's a major division in John's gospel. In chapters 1 to 5, Jesus' popularity is increasing. The crowds are growing. They are following Jesus. However, in chapter 7, his popularity begins to wane. Jesus was never impressed by large crowds. He knew that their motives were not pure and that most of them followed him just to watch his miracles of healing or to be healed themselves. Very few sought him as Savior and as Lord. Many just wanted him, as a, wanted him just as a healer or a provider or one who would rescue them from their crises. One commentator had this to say. He says, God is the source of all life. The Son has life in himself and he has come to give real and lasting life to people. Jesus offers hope. He offers genuine hope. At this point, Jesus began to divide the crowd with his teaching. This division would continue to grow as he sliced right through the crowd. Uh, look at their request in verses 34 and 35. They said to him, sir, give us this bread always. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Those listening to Jesus requested physical bread that was necessary for life. It was essential in the first century. It was a main staple in people's lives each and every day. Jesus answered their question, you want bread from heaven? I'm it. From this point on, Jesus, the Son of God, the Savior of the world, would divide the crowd. He drove a wedge between those who came and listened to him and those who truly believed in him. See, Jesus identified himself as the true bread. He says, I am the bread of life. Jesus is the essence of life. He sustains life. He gives life. Only Christ satisfies the real hunger of our human souls. Jesus' um, assertion that I am the bread of life would have reminded his Jewish leaders of Exodus chapter 3, when Moses observed a burning bush, and the Lord appeared to him and said, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I am who I am. Uh, go to my people and say to them, I am has sent you. What he is saying is, I am everything that you need. You don't need to look anywhere else. To Moses, he's saying, you have all that you need in me. And that's why, uh, that's why Moses responded by, real, by taking off his sandals and, and kneeling, because he realized whose presence he was in. 
That's why when we go to the book of John, we think of John, and when Jesus says, I am, Jesus is equating himself with, with Yahweh, with the I am of the Old Testament. From the very beginning, that's what Jesus is doing here. And that's what we need to realize, is that the I am claims of Jesus. Now here, go back to your first page of your notes, and you can add some extra thoughts there. See, first of all, are you spiritually hungry and thirsty? So Jesus says, I am the bread of life. He's our sustenance. And then we go on to, are you stumbling in spiritual? darkness in sin and guilt jesus answers this by saying i am the light of the world he is our direction he's showing us where to walk how to live and then do you yearn to go to heaven when you die so that's why he says i am the gate of the sheep he is the entrance into god's very presence and into his kingdom this is the significance of jesus i am statements then he says are you lost and are you hurting jesus says i am the good shepherd he is our provision and our protection that we need. Do you fear death? Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. See, Jesus is our hope of life with God in heaven after we die here on earth. One day, he's going to raise us all up from the dead. Do you want a personal relationship with your, uh, with your creator? And Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. See, he is the source of salvation, the only way to the Father. He reveals the truth about God, and he's the means of true life with God. And then we go on to say, do you feel weak and unproductive? And Jesus to this says, I am the vine. He is the means of strength and of nourishment. So Jesus is all sufficient to meet all of our needs. That's what we're going to be looking at over the next seven weeks, that he is sufficient to meet all of our needs. And that's the encouragement of this series, focused on Jesus on his person, and also on his work. But you know, we need to come to him. We need to come to him realizing how helpless we are. We're just like desperate beggars who are hungry, starving. We have no resources of our own. We're totally dependent on him as our genuine bread. See, that's why we come here. That's why we come to the table we're going to see as well our utter dependency upon him. See, Jesus distinguishes between two types of people in these verses. He clearly distinguished between uh, those who stood before him and around him in the synagogue of Capernaum. People turned to Jesus in one of two ways, and that describes all of us here today. Some ca casually glance at Jesus. Look at verse 36. He states to some of his listeners, they have seen me, yet they don't believe. Then drop down to verse 40, and he says, Everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him will have eternal life. The difference between these two groups is the difference between seeing and looking. The word see means to glance, to briefly look at Jesus. These people notice Jesus, but they don't realize who he is. They only notice what he might do for them. Now, on the other group are those who intently look to Jesus. The word look in verse 40 means to behold, to gaze at, to intensely observe, to perceive. Now, that's significant. These people recognize that Jesus is God. He is the bread of life. He's the giver of eternal life. 
through the rest of chapter 6, these two groups become more and more polarized as there's a wedge that is driven right between them. And it continues through the rest of the Gospel of John. Tragically, many people today, just as in the first century, come to Jesus in hopes that they, what he might do for them. They glance at Jesus. They, they're desiring to give themselves to him, but in anticipation of what he might do for them. So they saw the loaves in Jesus' day of bread and of fish that Jesus pre, uh, previously produced for the 5,000 plus people. But that's the good life. That's the comfortable life. That's the easy life where they receive everything that they want from him. The problem-free life. If you're in this group, let me just warn you. You'll be disappointed with Jesus. You'll glance at him, but then you'll go on to something else. That's what we see going on around us. But let's read about the second group. That's in verses 37 to 40. Notice what, what Jesus says. He says, all that the Father gives me will come to me. Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. For this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. And this is the will of God, that everyone who looks, gazes, stares, looks intensely, who perceives on the Son and believes in him, should have eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. See, we are to give ourselves fully to him. That second group of individuals look intently to Jesus. They stare at him. They gaze upon him. They enjoy his presence. And they see the beauty of all that Jesus is. They come to him because of who he is, not just to get something from him. In seeing him for who he is, they give themselves fully to him. The attitude is not, I want this, I want that, but it is, here I am, I give myself to you. God loves this selfless attitude. Reminds me of the story of, um, of a, actually a well-known Christian leader who tells the heart-wrenching story of a young lady who came to Christ through an inner-city mission of which he was a board member um, and works on um, here in the United States. Actually, it's in Philadelphia. The young woman came to know Christ in the city of Philadelphia, and she was raised in the uh, in the uh, under-resourced area uh, when she was just a young girl, and her natural father abused her sexually. Uh, her life was very unstable. Her mother and father split. Her mother brought in new, a new boyfriend, and he abused uh, her in the same way. When the older brothers found out about what uh, had happened to her, they forced her to have sex with them as well. When she was about 12 or 13, she just couldn't take it anymore. She felt so dirty, so defiled, she decided to kill herself. So she goes into the kitchen, she uh, closed the door and the windows, and she turned on the gas oven without the flame. She went over to the kitchen table, put her head down, and waited to die. But while she was there, she could hear the radio program coming from the next-door neighbor's apartment, and they had a religious program on. There was a choir that was singing, What a friend we have in Jesus, all our sins and griefs he bears. What a privilege to carry to God everything in prayer. Oh, what needless pain we, what peace we forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear, all because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. The Holy Spirit moved in the life of this young woman. She stood up. She turned off the stove. She opened the door. She walked down to the mission that was near her home, uh, uh, that was in her area, and she realized that she had a need uh, that they could help her with. 
They shared the love of Jesus Christ with her. She put her faith in Jesus Christ. She gave her testimony at a banquet one evening in that, for that inner city mission. And this is what she said as she concluded. She said, from this point on, I said to Jesus, I'm holding nothing back. You take me and you use me. You bless me. And you help me be a blessing to others. Help me reach other girls so they don't go through the pain and trauma that I had to go through. Lord, help me make a difference for you. That's what surrender is. God, here I am. Use me with all the hurts, with all the brokenness. But may people see Christ in me. That's what she sought to do with her life, point people to Jesus. The interesting thing is those who surrender their whole lives to Christ are given two promises. Again, this is what Jesus is saying to us. The first one is that we'll find complete satisfaction in Christ. In verse 35, Jesus promised that he, we would never hunger or thirst in our souls. He was saying, I'm the real soul food. Only Jesus, only Jesus can satisfy the yearning of our souls. Only Jesus uh, is able to comfort our hearts in sorrow and grief and depression. In times of sorrow, he brings joy. In times of grief, he brings hope. In times of depression, he brings encouragement. The second promise that we, will, we receive is found in verse 37. Christ will never abandon us. Those who come to Jesus, those who put their faith in him, uh, who gaze at him, he said that he will never drive them out or away from himself. He promised, whoever comes to me, I'll never cast out. What a promise. If we have uh, put our faith in Christ, the one who died on the cross for our sins, he'll never get rid of us. He'll never dump us. He'll never discard us. He'll never ignore us. Every person matters to Christ. He loves and he cares for each one. Uh, God created us. Jesus died to redeem us. And he seeks for each person to know Jesus Christ. Just as he uh, did for that young girl in Philadelphia. Jesus promises never, ever to cast us aside. When you come to Jesus, you realize who he is. He's almighty God. And you give yourself to him. You put your faith in him as your savior. He promises to never cast you away. He is the one who gives us life. Life that is not abstract, but it's real. It's life in the fullest sense of the word, as God desires for us to live. That's why he says four times here in these verses, I will raise him up on the last day. That's the hope that we have. He's going to raise us when, we, when our life ends here on earth and we go into his presence. Now, over the years, I've done numerous funerals. I think I'm in my 90s now, not age-wise, but just the number of funerals that I've done. Um, and I could give you dozens and dozens of, of examples of those who, uh, whose lives have come to an end here on earth, but in their final dying moments were confident that Christ would raise them up so they could spend eternity with Jesus, their Savior. Most recently, people like Craig Lynch, Don Gibson, B. Christensen, Herbert Weinthaler, Arnie Sorensen, Dick Shoemaker, Betty Stacco, Irv Sedjo, Betty Smith, John Bien, uh, Sandy Delgado, and there's a host of other names of people who kept saying, yes, I'm looking to him because I know that he is my true sustenance. He's going to call me home. Godly men and women who gave themselves fully to Christ, who had experienced his faithfulness throughout their lives. Christ prepared a place for them, and he's come and taken them so they can be with him for eternity. That's the hope that we have. 
And Jesus assures us that it, because of our belief in him, that we have the hope of the resurrection. So that's why, you know, we're made new creations. I think of what it says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. If anyone be in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away and the new has come. That's what we hang on to. That's why I love what that young uh, woman in Philadelphia, from this point on, I'm holding nothing back from you, Jesus. You take me and use me. You bless me and you help me be a blessing to others. Help me to reach other girls so they don't have to go through the pain and the trauma that I had to go through. Lord, help me make a difference for you. Now we need to move on here because we have people, uh, people's uh, response to Jesus has eternal consequences. This is what we have to definitely remember. Notice in verse 41, it says, So the Jews grumbled about him because he, had, uh, he said, I am the bread that came from heaven. Now notice what he's doing. He's driving a wedge between them. People have to respond. And that's why it's going to lead us to the, to the table of communion. It's a dividing point because it's a time of decision when you take the Lord's Supper. See, it's not something we take lightly, just something that we do once a month. It's a time that we literally recommit ourselves to Christ. And that's what we're going to see here. That wedge is going to get further and further pronounced. It was that in verse 42 to say, They said, Is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, Do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father uh, who sent me draws him. And I will raise him up on the last day, as it is written in the prophet. They will be, all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the man in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I give for the life of the world is my flesh. That's incredible what Jesus just had to utter. Now, those viewing Jesus as only human, being human, will die physically and spiritually. That's what Jesus says here. The bread of heaven has come down. And they're saying, that's offensive. That's blasphemy. You're claiming to be God. And that's right, because that's what he was doing. So he rebuked them for their grumbling and their disbelief. And see, what happens is they, they were... They were, uh, they were this is what's happening here. In, in, in Acts chapter 5, verse uh, 51, Stephen is on trial before the Sanhedrin. And he looks at the Sanhedrin and he says, you have become so stubborn that you're not even responsive to the Holy Spirit anymore. What this is saying is that we can come to the place where our hearts are so hardened that God just says, hey, I'm, I'm giving you to your own will. Uh, you just live your own way. You become deaf to the Holy Spirit. And he's saying, hey, have it your way. Not my will, but your will be done, is what God is saying to those individuals. Well, all of a sudden, he just pulls his hand back and says, hey, I, I think that God wants every person to come to faith. But eventually, the person's heart becomes so hardened that nothing penetrates it. Now, I still am very optimistic. I think the Holy Spirit is constantly at work, and so we're hoping that at some point. But what Jesus is saying is there's this wedge that's being driven between those who doubt him and those who and reject him and those who believe him. And that's what we're seeing taking place here. That those are the ones who are coming to Jesus for what he can do for them, not recognizing 
for who he is. But let's get on the positive side. Those trusting in Jesus have their sins forgiven and receive eternal life. That's what he's talking about in verses 47 48. That's why he says, I am the bread of life. In other words, his life becomes our life. We become holy and righteous just like he did because we have a swap that takes place. He takes our sinfulness and the penalty of our sins and we become righteous. People, this is what life is all about. You may be thinking, I can go my way and I can figure out my own way, but ultimately, that will lead to destruction. What Jesus is saying, you've got to recognize who I am. I am the bread of life. I'm your very sustenance. I'm your nourishment. I'm what life is all about. And Jesus is very bold here, and he drives that wedge right between them. See, the division between believers and unbelievers becomes very apparent. They even say in verse 52, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? See, for the Orthodox Jews, that prohibited eating human flesh and drinking any kind of blood. Generally, Jesus warned them, unless a person eats his flesh, that being Jesus' flesh, and drinks his blood, they would not experience life. Now, he's talking about faith. It's not the literal blood and, uh, the body and blood of Jesus. It represents that he would be dying on the cross, and it's through our faith. So that leads us to, why did people come to the Lord's Supper? Well, they, we, we come to the Lord's Supper, we come to his table to remember Christ's sacrifice for us. That's what he's done for us. Communion is an outward act of inward truth. We also come to realize his life becomes our life. See, when we eat the bread representing his flesh and we drink the cup which represents his body, we realize that through our faith, life, his life becomes our life. His righteousness becomes our righteousness. Just as Jesus was raised from the grave, so we will one day as well. So it's a time of hope. But notice that the last thing I just want to emphasize here is that it's also a time to recommit ourselves to him. We come to the table, and there's a wedge between those who don't believe and those who believe. And those who believe are really committing ourselves. We come to the table really as an act of worshiping God, thanking God for what he's done for us through Christ, and also recommit ourselves. Recommit ourselves saying, God, you have all of me. Because in Jesus, he gave his ultimate for us. He died so we could live. And that's why we come to the table. We come to the table to recommit ourselves to Jesus Christ. Just like that young woman. God, you, I'm holding nothing back. You have all of me. I want to be used by you to further your kingdom work. See, it's not what we get from Jesus. It's being in his presence and allowing him to live through us to a world that desperately needs Jesus. So my concluding question for us today is, who will you share Christ with? Who will we look to in the sense that what we're, what we're doing is, who needs to uh, realize that Jesus truly does, uh, he truly satisfies the deepest longings of our heart? You can't share that with someone if it's not true in your life, if it's not true in my life. That's the hope that we have. That leads us right into communion. Because what is communion? Communion is really the time that we celebrate as a church. And what we do is we celebrate what Christ has done for us. We practice open communion here, which means that we welcome all believers, those who have put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, and to celebrate with us. Parents, you decide whether your child or your children have trusted in Christ and whether they understand what communion represents. This morning, we begin by using our, our traditional elements for communion. Uh, that means that we're going to be passing it out in just a few minutes. So it's a little bit different than what we've done the last two years. 
If you prefer a prepackaged cracker and juice, please raise your hand now because we want to be sensitive to that. If you would like to have what we have had in those uh, little containers, raise your hand because we do have some people who are going to be passing those out. Do we have anyone that would like one of those? It obviously means that you like the traditional way better. And I think that the cracker is much, much better than what we've been eating. Um, but, but that's just my personal view. Obviously, some of you agree. Uh, communion is a special time for us as a church family. We reflect on God's love for us in sending Jesus Christ to be crucified on the cross for us. And then he rose from the grave to show us that he is triumphant over sin and over death. The bread represents the body of Christ. He took the penalty of our sins on himself. Physical and spiritual death, um, ultimately spiritual death that separates us from God. He took on the sins of the world. God unleashed his wrath on Jesus instead of on us. He was our substitutionary atonement for the provisions of our sins. The cup represents the shed blood of Christ, that he lived a sinless life. He alone could provide a perfect sacrifice for us. He died in our place. That's why the scriptures tell us, without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. We were redeemed by the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish, or spot. Now God does exhort us that when we take the Lord's Supper, when we come to the Lord's table, that we are to partake in a worthy fashion, lest we be guilty of concerning the body and the blood of Christ. So we're instructed in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 28, to examine ourselves before eating the bread or drinking the cup. I would encourage you to confess any wrong thoughts, unkind words, or sinful actions that you have done. Uh, Jesus says that he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Ask God's forgiveness so that you can take communion in a worthy fashion or else just let it pass by you. The elders are now going to come forward uh, and so they're going to come to serve us um, and then they'll be passing out the trays uh, with the bread and the cup. So please take one if you wish to join us. Uh, if not, go ahead and let it pass by you. And as you wait um, uh, for the appropriate time, then all of us, uh, once we've all been served, uh, we will actually um, then partake together. So let me go ahead and pray, and then we'll pass out the elements. Father, we thank you for what Christ has done for us. When we take the bread, we think of how he paid the penalty for our, uh, for our transgression. He took the penalty of spiritual death, and he does that for our welfare because of his great love. Scriptures tell us that, God, you demonstrate your love towards us while we were yet sinners. Christ died for us. And we take the cup. He shed his blood for us. And so that's the symbolism that takes place. We are to remember what he has done for us. Father, we thank you and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.